Media Kicks is the leading influencer marketing agency, connecting the world's top brands with engaged audiences through social media influencers. Their campaigns drive brand awareness, audience engagement, and product sales for top brands like Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Visit MediaKicks.com to get started with your influencer campaign today. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today we're delighted to welcome three distinguished guests. Luke Wang is the former VP of Business Operations at LA-based MCN Omnia Media. Prior to Omnia, he worked at Machinima and CAA. Chadwick Turner is the founder and CEO of Circle VR, an immersive agency focused on augmented and virtual reality. He also worked at CAA with Luke and then spent time at 20th Century Fox, Amazon, and Vridio. And John Krupp is the Director of Customer Growth at Tubular Labs, a big data and business intelligence suite for online video. John is a Silicon Valley native who worked at Anheuser-Busch and then a Twitter analytics platform called Topsy, which was acquired by Apple in December 2013 for more than $200 million. Unfortunately, I didn't have more, uh, more shares. <laughs> somewhere, uh, there we go. So let's go ahead and have you guys just do quick introductions as well so people can put a voice to the name. Sure. I guess I'll start it off. My name is Luke, and as you mentioned, I've worked at a few companies such as CA, Machinima, Omnimedia. Kind of started off coming out of college, always wanted to work in entertainment. And uh, Chadwick and I were actually in the same business program there called the uh, Business of Cinematic Arts, the BCA program. And kind of what it was was a joint degree program between the Marshall School of Business and the film school there. And, and of uh, course, you're talking about the most distinguished university. Of course, the, the <laughs> USC. There we go. But no, it was a great class. It was a small program where 40 of us that were in the program kind of took all the same classes together all four years of college. And so when we graduated, we had a built-in sort of mini network um, as we sort of found different jobs in the entertainment industry. So coming out of there, I worked at a talent agency called CA, which is one of the biggest agencies in LA, repping everyone from like Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, LeBron James, a lot of different athletes, actors, directors, and such. When I was there, I uh, really had a passion for the film business, but quickly realized that I hated reading scripts, you know, didn't want my only skill coming out of school to be a fast reader, wanted to see what other options there were in entertainment. And that's when I started to kind of look at the digital world as a potential outlet because it's still creative enough and fun and entertaining. And I figured if I was able to make a living by watching YouTube videos or Netflix, then that would be a good enough job as it was. <laughs> and that's when I went to Machinima in 2013, spent about a year there learning the ins and outs of the MCN world, how to work with YouTubers, learning what CPM meant, and just really kind of doing a deep dive into how the digital landscape was evolving. And after about a year, I was fortunate enough to meet the CEO of Omnimedia, where I spent the last two years, as you mentioned, uh, first as their director of business development, and then uh, heading up all of this operations and been a great experience since. Yeah. So you were number three at Omnia Media. What made you jump shipping and evolve so early on? I think it was just kind of the nature of the MCM business where I think in 2012, 2013, it was really a wild west sort of environment where you could really make up the rules as you went. You know, a lot of companies are raising a lot of cash. But the metrics that these companies were being judged on and being valued on, it was a little bit more vague as to how and why these companies should be. Because sometimes, you know, just given the time of the day, we were a talent agency, a production company, an ad agency, most of the time, all three in one in one day. That gave us a lot of flexibility and a lot of freedom to sort of make up our own rules as we went. Coming out of Machinima, you know, I think when I joined the company, I was probably the 200th or 220th employee there. It was a really large company at that time and, and kind of 
wanting to go back into the digital space where I had a little bit more influence and control over where the business was going. That was one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why I went to Omnium. Thanks, Luke. And Chadwick? Yeah, Luke kind of summed up a lot of my previous experience. BCA program, awesome. USC has is really the epicenter of immersive media these days. You can look at Nani De La Pena. You can look at the founders of X-Res. You can look at Mark Boyd. Like, like where did Palmer get his inspiration? You go, you can fo- follow that path all the way back to USC. So if you're interested and you're listening to this podcast and you're a kid trying to figure out how do I get into the VR industry and you're looking at schools. When I was looking for schools, I literally Googled number one film school. Don't even have to Google it anymore. If you want to work in entertainment, you go to USC. With regards to my experience, I worked at Amazon in business development, was on the Fire Phone launch team, Fire TV launch team, Amazon App Store BD team for games, built a head-mounted display for the Fire Phone. If anybody wants to see some really cool tech from early 2014 for VR, the Fire Phone was awesome. I don't think enough of them got sold to make it a big deal, but even those numbers weren't shared with me. More recently worked at Vridio, distribution platform for virtual reality content. You can think of it as a YouTube of VR and you know the most common retort to that is isn't YouTube doing VR? It's like, yeah, they are, but you know, it's they're they're a big, big, big cruise ship and and Bridia, little star and those kind of platforms are like speedboats. So they can accommodate shifts in the ecosystem a lot quicker where YouTube is literally the second largest search engine on earth. So they have to accommodate and battle HBO and Amazon Instant Video and they have to battle the 360 and they can't just add a a feature right away. They have to vet it, which allows these startups to exist. In addition, those startups, you can imagine Microsoft, Amazon, Apple looking at those startups as a potential entry point for an Aqua hire. So with that, you know, I recently left Radio, been doing Circle VR actually since the beginning of 2014. When I was at Amazon, I started the idea of actually consulting and representing talent because as you can imagine, there's a lot of people in this space that are great at the creative, but they're having to do their own BD at the same time, manage their own contracts. And a lot of creatives just don't understand how to value what they have, the skills they have, and to protect creatives and actually get them money for their work. Um, that's what I've been really focused on recently. And in addition, another thing to add to the wheelhouse of what I've been up to, I'm now chief creative officer of a stealth production company called Epicenter VR. It's in association with what I think to be one of the strongest VR games companies out there, Grab Games. And if you look up Grab, uh, you can go to grab.com and look at their VR portion of it. They're doing this experience for John Wick. If you've seen that Keanu Reeves movie, in association with Weaver and Starbreeze and Lionsgate, Grab is developing this ridiculously cool experience for John Wick where you literally get to be in the hotel lobby, use the HTC Vive to ring the bell, pay with your gold coin, go up, you're targeted with a sniper, you go down, you got to shoot. And it's probably the most impressive interactive experience I've seen in VR. So Epicenter is the sister company that allows for the live action components. Um, So I'll end with, you can imagine Epicenter and Grab in this ecosystem of one does full interactive, one does passive immersive content. But in that Venn diagram, imagine the overlap. You can have live action content where you get to kind of choose your own adventure. Imagine a horror film where you get to decide if the protagonist hides in the attic or hides in the basement. We're not only weeks away, months away, years away. Like we already have this. It just requires, like you said, CPM, right, Luke? Oh, yeah. We need we need the millions of people to pull out their phones, and then uh, this industry will begin. So, yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Chadwick. And John? Yeah. You know, I think for, for this conversation, the, my last two roles are probably what's really relevant, you know, starting with Topsy and being in a similar time when I went to Topsy, which was really focused on Twitter, to when I joined uh, Tubular, which was focused on online video. Both times were a period of where we were trying to help early adopters validate a particular social strategy. And, you know, whether it was brands or agencies, 
So at Topsy was really cool. Twitter was just starting to take off from a brand perspective. It had already been adopted by media companies, but now, you know, they're, you know, at the time it was before, as they were getting ready, Twitter getting ready for their IPO. So they're really trying to push ad sales. And, uh, you know, we worked with Twitter, built their uh, fire hose and we were like, you know, they're exclusive, one of our exclusive API partners. So really interesting time and to see the parallels. Cause you know, after that, as you said, that company got acquired by Apple, you know, I just really enjoyed working for a fast growing, you know, analytics startup and wanted to jump back into something else. And a friend of mine pulled me aside and said, and this like two, over two years ago, Hey, you know, the next thing is online video and tubular at that point was just about 10 employees hadn't released a product yet, you know, help them. And on the business development side, really find their initial market fit, which was with the multi-channel networks. Then we moved on to brands and agencies, similar kind of growth curve, you know, watching it go from multi-channel networks who were at the time, everyone was starting to write off and didn't see them ever really getting a chance to maybe even making it. And then the maker acquisition happens. And then all of a sudden, you know, our client base goes to big media companies, big brands, and, and everybody who's trying to get into that space. So both of my roles have really been helped helping brands validate strategy through data and analytics and providing them the software to do that. So kind of a different perspective from more of the production and creative side, I think you guys bring, but my role wouldn't exist without that. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Very diverse group. Thank you all for being here. So today we're focused on the future of the online video space, very broad, expansive topic, but we're going to talk about, you know, some specific segments and really dive deep. So the first thing I want to start with is virtual reality. And so Chadwick, if you could tell us a little bit more about what initially piqued your interest in that yeah. space and where you think that's going for video. So I have this, I have this drawing that I look at probably once a month. It's just framed in my house and it says, I am Batman. And it's literally me drawing myself as Batman as a little kid. And I'm like, that sounds really cool. And I've had it for a while because I'm a big Batman fan, but we're now about maybe two, three, four years away where literally you could be in your living room and you can be the Dark Knight. So this is that more entertainment side of things where I can literally wear the Cape Crusader outfit and fight crime. And it's not a science fiction fantasy. It's not something that Philip Dick has, has written about and I can just dream about. Like we're, we're there. We're one or two generations away from this feeling as if it's real. The other piece of it is when the Oculus Rift came out, my wife's father is a brain cancer survivor, but if you go to his home, it seems like he's lived like six or seven different lives. He's a Peace Corps member in India, studied in Cape Town, PhD from MIT, built Arco's pipeline in Alaska. He has guns from other parts of the world and, and trophies of, of heads that he's hunted. And it's just like, whoa, this is great. But I've only known him when he's actually not been able to travel at those great, great extents. So married his daughter and I was like, oh, where should we go for our honeymoon? Where have you not been in a while that you'd love to see? And he said, uh, you know, Amsterdam, Paris, I'd love to see those again. So bought a six camera GoPro rig in 2013 and just started filming this and brought it back to him. And it was a great moment of, wow, this is virtual reality is cool. I can be Batman, but at the same time, it's going to open windows to the world, to people that are unable to do it because of health, because of money, because of all these different things. So it democratizes experiences. And that's what really makes me passionate about it because looking at a photo on your laptop, looking at it on shelf phones, a lot different than moving your head and feeling as if you're there. So we're there. It just boils down to we got 2 billion smartphones or 7 billion people estimate out that within 5, 10 years, everybody will have a smartphone. And a lot of this content is going to be free. So you are looking at 5, 10 years from now where a kid in the Midwest that potentially has no money to travel to the, see the Louvre can see the Louvre. That's quite quite compelling. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. Luke, what are you seeing? Are creators adopting virtual reality, augmented reality? When do we see adoption kind of hitting the mainstream? 
Yeah, I mean, I, de- I think definitely from a content creator perspective, it's a buzzword that is starting to pick up a lot of traction. You're seeing a lot of big guys invest some way, shape or form part of their time to creating VR content because they know it is speculative, but it's also like a guaranteed speculative play on their part, just because Facebook is investing so much into it. YouTube is investing so much into it. Obviously startups that Chadwick has mentioned are all doing it on a more, on a small level, but everyone is, I think is really excited for all the same reasons that Chadwick mentioned is that immersive quality of being able to experience something that is not like a film going to a theater or watching TV or watching something on your phone. It creates kind of this level of content consumption experience that, you know, it's, it's so unique and really hasn't been, been done before. Just to add to that, one thing that's interesting is I've had some pretty top level meetings with major studios. And if you ask them a question, if they've had a good VR experience, they've tried something really compelling. And I'm like, are you guys doing anything in VR? They're like, well, we're interested. We just don't know when the right time to do something is. I asked a very point blank question. By 2020, will this thing be huge? And they go, yes, absolutely. By 2019, will this be huge? Yes. So they absolutely went away. By 2018, will this thing be huge? Yeah. So now it's yeah. By 2017, will this thing be huge? They're like, we think so. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. By 2016, they're like, we don't know. I'm like, okay, cool. How long does it take for you guys to shift your strategic strategy to include something of this magnitude? They're like, between 12 to 24 months. I'm like, so this is the meeting. We're literally meeting right now to figure out if this is something that you're going to be a like around for, for when this party really takes off. Because 2017, Q1 2017 is the moment that we can finally validate if it's begun. But no one questions whether or not this is sticking around. It's not 3D TV. It's if you try a compelling experience, then you don't question whether or not it's it has validity in it as its own vertical. The most dangerous thing in virtual reality is experiencing bad VR and associating that with the entire ecosystem. It's it's like, you know, how everybody uses the word, uh, the Ben Affleck movie, Geely is like a terrible film. If I put you in a room, you've never seen a movie before, and I show up with that DVD and show you that movie, you then hate movies, that's bad. That's bad for the film industry. And the same thing with VR. Someone makes something terrible on a little GoPro rig, shows it to their mom. Their mom goes, this is terrible. I'll never do VR again. It's a bummer. So I guess when did, what is the turning point look like? Is it the tech sounds like the technology is already there. Mm-hmm. Is it getting more consumers exposed to it, excited about it? Or I think it- the hardware is there, right? Yeah. For the most part, I yep. think there's still some software challenges yep. around presence and other things that need to be figured out. And really yep. it's adoption, right? When can this be yep. affordable enough? And there's enough interest from users to popularize or democratize, as you say, the access to virtual reality. Yeah, it's in serialized content, I think is always the thing that you recognize as, Like when TV took off, there was serialized content every week. At this time, you'd go and watch brand new content, whether it was the I Love Lucy show to Carson with The Tonight Show, like all these seminal moments of television consumption. It's like, okay, there was a thing I'd go back to at a consistent rate. You have companies out there with Verse, Jaunt, these guys that are making, you know, high production value content, but it's not at a consistent clip. So I have to go back, check if there's anything new that I haven't seen and granted, that'll come with time. By 2017, they'll have even more investment money, expanded production resources. But serialized content, I think, is the thing that will finally make people pull their phones out at a consistent clip. You know, one thing to bring up on this on this podcast, too, is the five companies that really control the digital ecosystem for everything, from productivity to travel to search engines, is Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft. You can argue Samsung, you can argue Netflix, but no, I, I always say, come on, I don't need Netflix. I like it. I don't need Samsung. I, I just I just don't. But those are the five that control it. Amazon, I was on that team. Maybe they're doing something with Lab 126, but I can tell you this, 
Like I didn't see anything. Microsoft, obviously with HoloLens, they're doing some things. Google, obviously with cardboard. Facebook, obviously with Oculus, but Apple, right? Everybody could probably in this room have at least one iOS product. This week, Apple added the Mattel Viewmaster to their store. If you go to store.apple.com, it's the only HMD available, but they have the Viewmaster on there. I know it sounds like, eh, what's that mean? It it just shows awareness on their side because they curate the hell out of that store. That's a good baby step for the number one smartphone maker for the US and UK saying they're aware of virtual reality and they're probably going to make some announcements next year. Yeah. We talk a lot about the entertainment use cases, but what about in travel, as you mentioned, or video conferencing, right? We all hate kind of video conferencing meetings or, or conference calls. Maybe, you know, virtual reality could make human interaction more meaningful. And what about educational use cases, right? Training everything from fighter pilots to astronauts to nurses or, or surgeons, right? I mean, there's a lot of other very interesting applications for VR down the road. Yeah. I think, I think it also helped people understand whether or not they truly want to be a lawyer truly want to be a doctor at a very young age. My first job, by the way, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon when I was 15. So I went to a hospital in Renton, Washington, started filming their hip and knee replacement surgeries, and then actually enjoyed the post-production process more. And was like, I'm going to be a director. So I think that there's a huge practical application for real estate, medical, medical, especially. I mean, you can see these surgeries beforehand. Doctors can actually go as an invasive surgery and maybe even have a small micro six-prong camera that can let them look around the space. This is not about entertainment. Virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, whatever, will affect every single industry. It's like, you ever seen my big fat Greek wedding? The guy can trace back every word to Greek. If you're smart about VR, you can trace back how VR will affect every single industry. We can talk about marine biology. Oh, you will see the ocean and it will be there. Like, <laughs> like it's every single industry will is be Russian affected. Russian marine biologist? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to be the Greek guy. I, I love it. Yeah. I think. It's all coming together. It's somewhat connected. <laughs> what, you mentioned augmented reality. Let's talk yeah. about that. You know, Google Glass is a project that's for the most part been shuttered. What other initiatives are going on that are meaningful right now in the augmented reality space? Well, I always thought, you know, when I was at Amazon, I always wanted them to do something where if I took a photo of what's in my cupboard, they could give me a suggestion. On, they could like, give you an inventory. And yeah, like, hey, man, you can make good, good tomato boot bisque right now. There like, we go. You, or and if you couldn't, but you're only missing one or two ingredients. They're like, hey, man, these are available on that. Prime now. There we go. We got an hour away from some One click shipping. That's right. So, like, where are they going? I think Google Glass was the best beta product that they ever did. And they just said, okay, we're done. Like, just too early? Well, you heard about glass holes, right? Oh, yeah. Like people won't ready, but my Ray-Bans within five, 10 years will have Google products in them. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, what's the weather? Or my car display, my windshield display. Yeah. So I had a Corvettes since like 2005, I've had those in dashboard displays and they're pretty monochromatic, but imagine what's the weather going to be where I'm going. All looks at my calendar, jumps to this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, augmented is the big play. TechCrunch even estimates $200 billion industry by 2020. And they assume out of that roughly 100 to 150 billion is augmented reality because of productivity. Skype doing, you know, actually adjusting AutoCAD files uh, in front of your eyes. The entertainment part of it's 30 to 50 billion. So it's smaller. But remember, the games industry in and of itself was like 30, 40, 50 billion. So you're talking about an entire games industry. Sure. Which is bigger than motion pictures (laughs) at this point. We'll just exist in five years. Yeah. And shopping is another interesting use case, whether that's personally like getting your measurements and and shopping for clothes online or say buying a house and not having to be there to do it or or furnishing a house and being able to purchase furniture kind of remotely using VR. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's going to be big. It's, um, that's that whole piece of you talk about what grab an epicenter. This is why I wanted to join up with these guys. You have in videos that people have made 
of a home where they determine what they want to show you in the order in which they want to show you it. But what you should be able to do is you enter the foyer and now you see around. There's a dining room in front of you. There's a staircase to your left. There's a living room to your right. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to see it? That layer of interactivity, even though it seems, oh yeah, that's that's instinctive. Like, that should, isn't that in everything? No, it's not. It's not even close. Google doesn't support it yet. Facebook doesn't support it yet. So the problem is, that means you have to have standalone applications. And Comscore did a report, I think it was early 2015 or late 2014, that said on average, US and UK citizens install 0.2 apps per month. So if you do front end estimation, it's zero. So we all know how accurate Comscore is. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that because I think about the stuff that I install, I have kind of my when I first buy a product, I probably install like 30, 40 apps, my go tos, my Ubers, my Lyfts, et cetera. But then to get me to install a new one, it has to take somebody that has like a real strong opinion that I trust. Like Luke over here, if he says, yo, you got to try this thing. It's fantastic. I'll probably consider it. Real quick, Luke, app recommendation. What do you got for us? Oh, man. There's a lot. What do I use most? Keep it appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, because it's football season right now, I'm all over my Yahoo Fantasy football app. I think they have the best UI UX of any of the fantasy. How's your lineup? It's good. 15 and 1. Well, there we go. 13 to 1. I'm playing in the championships this year. So, Mm -hmm. this week. So, I'm pretty excited. How many Panthers did you get at the start? (laughs) I got zero Panthers. Oh, wow. Still still alive. So, that's Mm -hmm. good. No, but on the, I guess, on the productivity side or kind of like more businessy side, I really like Asana, which is a project management tool. Since I left Omnia like six months ago, I've been consulting for various companies, you know, obviously email and actually Slack on top of Asana, but those two kind of, have helped me sort of organize my life in a way that I didn't have before. With Asana, you can manage projects, you can manage tasks within projects, you can assign to people certain tasks within certain projects. You know, it's been a really great way for me to just keep my life organized. And then Slack, obviously, you know, there's a lot of people talking about it right now, but it really, at least for the few projects where I do need to communicate a lot more frequently with people on, cuts down on that uh, inbox clutter a lot more. So it's been, Mm -hmm. it's been good. Yeah, if, you, if you're texting somebody probably six, seven times a day over similar projects, you should just set up a Slack. Yeah. So what's what I do? So we've talked a lot about VR. We've touched on AR. How does 360 video factor in the mix? Yeah, so there's a lot of people talking on the, the boards about it's not VR video. It's blah, blah, blah. I just call it immersive media at this point just to let everybody deal with the nomenclature until it sifts itself out. Because 360 video, one of the reasons why I got into this space is I think there's a huge opportunity in 180-degree video, 270-degree video. 360 is awesome. It's full immersion. And, but if your story doesn't require it, it doesn't doesn't necessarily need to be there. The other concept is 360. Is it monoscopic or stereoscopic? Are you doing 3D or are you doing non-3D? And the normal response I say is if you can nail the 3D, do it. Most people can't. There's a reason why there's people that are on set of major Hollywood films that are just perfectly there for the math of the 3D. So I think monoscopic 360 video is here to stay. In fact, there's cameras that auto stitch it. So you can just hold up this thing. Rico Theta is a great example. 35 minutes of auto stitched footage. It saves it in the camera and you can immediately upload to YouTube and Facebook because there's two prongs to this entire 360 video, you know, beginning of industry. It's the UGC. So the user generated content, how can we make that super streamlined for people just to shoot and upload? And then you got the the premium content, which needs to come from companies like Epicenter, Jean, Burst, et cetera. But if we don't both show up to the party, we won't get that Charlie bit my finger moment and we won't get that lazy Sunday moment. Because those two moments were kind of seminal to the YouTube success. It was 
I think my mom sent me both of those. Like I had already seen them, but I know when I got it from my mom, I'm like, oh, this is, <laughs> this a, is, this is a big deal. Like she, she found this stuff. So yeah, I think it's here, but the problem is the, the prosumer version is six GoPros that need to be perfectly timed. You import it into two video, so- video solutions, uh, stitching solutions called Color, K-O-L-O-R, which was bought by GoPro. You literally have to sync them, stitch them, perfect them, or you can go with video stitch, both of which are from France. France is all about the stitch. Like it's very impressive. Video Stitch is still an independent organization, I believe, and Color is now owned by GoPro. But there's an entire post-production workflow. Like I tell somebody if they want to get involved with with VR with GoPros, it's going to cost you ten grand. I think that's. So I think yeah. that's. That, I think that's a challenge yeah. with VR because if you talk about user-generated content and what what makes YouTube successful as well is there's you know incentive there, and you let alone people making even just like scripted content on YouTube is hard to actually be profitable because, you know, you have a $3 CPM maybe, and you have to push out a ton of content. And so that's why, you know, primarily see people who are successful on YouTube today are people who are doing a lot of vlogging or a lot of content you can regurgitate and recreate and upload four or five videos of those a week. And so that's where I think some of the challenge is, is how do you incentivize people to create that video if you're a YouTuber and you've got a huge audience already, yeah, maybe I want experience to mix thing up, things up. But even if I get, you know, three times as many views for that type of video, what's my ultimate payoff? Is it helping me acquire a new audience? Yep. Is it helping me drive new revenue? And and that's where, in the way that Twitch helped really push live streaming and by adding new revenue streams with, you know, engagements for, you know, getting, including the audience, you know, to do virtual hats and, and buying engagements that kind of monetized live streaming in a way that YouTube couldn't. I'm wondering, in order to make VR successful, is there going to be a new platform that's, you know, takes into account the premium nature of the content and then also factors in yeah. some other kind of economics to like adequately like support the creators that are creating that content? Well, I would encourage anybody that's an Android developer right now for VR that just wants to create compelling experiences. The Amazon App Store for Android has something that I think went a little under the radar, but it's really in a compelling monetization model and it's, it's engagement based. So Amazon pays you as a developer. I think it's like a cent for every user that plays in your experience for five minutes, they'll pay you one penny. Of course, you're like, well, how would I do that? How would I make money in that? But the point is, there's that concept we've all heard from the whales. And then we use the more positive nomenclature of like power user. Right. And they, if we've all, you guys watched that South Park episode that talked about this. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's really, it's funny because there's a oh, small yeah, so, percentage yeah, yeah, of yeah, people yeah. at the yeah. top that pay for all of the gameplay. You're just going after these people that will do the microtransactions. And a lot of game developers, when you talk to them, the successful ones are, yay, we're making billions and this is, we figured it out. But a lot of game makers are like, no, we want to make great experiences. We don't want to dumb it down to build paywalls and game loops and all these things for monetization. So Amazon came up with this really customer centric idea, which was engagement based, make a great experience. Uh, make an experience that people don't want to leave. So when I was there, I was like, man, we got to get as much VR content in there as possible because virtual reality is all about engagement. How do you keep somebody in there? They don't, they almost forget that they're in another environment. So yeah, I would advise if you're trying to figure out monetization, go Amazon first. An Amazon customer is more comparable to an iOS customer. I mean, you know, Google, it's, it's, there's so many Google customers. So it really kind of waters down the, the ones that monetize. So Amazon customers have to have credit cards on file. It's just how your Amazon account works. iOS, most of those customers have a credit card on file. So if there was a- Well, and they're choosing to buy a $600, $700 iPhone there instead of a you know $200 Android. Yep. So tend to be higher income consumers. That's right. Luke, any other thoughts on the 360 video space? Have you seen kind of what Facebook's done or 
Yeah, I mean, Facebook, it's, I mean, just kind of based on my newsfeed, they're definitely pushing out more 360 videos. I feel like every other post that Mark Zuckerberg posts is about 360 videos. It's like, hey, look at this thing. That was smart guy. Smart guy, you know, obviously kind of made the investment into Oculus and kind of sees where digital content is going. So outside just kind of a personal experience, I think obviously Chadwick's definitely more of an expert. But from a personal standpoint, it's becoming more and more apparent and just kind of the more random places in my life, not just on my newsfeed, but people keep talking about it that don't have any relation with one another, but I just keep seeing it. So, or maybe I'm just more aware of people talking about it now than I was six months ago or something. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some things that hit a little bit closer to home for say Luke or John and myself, live streaming, right? So in 2015, we saw the rise of a number of new live streaming services, including Meerkat, Periscope, StreamUp, Beam, many others. And then as we've talked about, there are existing or established companies like YouNow and then major platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, which is part of Amazon, getting into that space and, and really making a big play for live streaming. Who wins the live streaming wars, in your opinion? What happens? I don't think it's a winner take all because I think if you look at someone like YouNow and you look at Twitch, they're serving an entirely different audience. And and they're optimizing their platform for the type of content that they're delivering, which is the reason why they were able to take creators from a platform they were already successful on YouTube and pull them off and have them commit time to it because there is return on time for the creator. And so I think there's going to be multiple winners. And I think you now is doing a fantastic job. We, we actually at Tubular, we work with both of those companies and, you know, they're really focused on still building the community and like expanding the, the creators that they're working with. But I think the way they win and the winners, so to speak, are the ones who make it, you know, the environment great for the creator. And so there's a return there. And I think by satisfying the creator and making a, a suitable experience for the audience, the creator will take care of the rest because, you know, they're going to want to serve an audience. They're, you know, they're incentivized to, to serve the audience. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. I think, you know, right now we have a lot of platforms, all the ones you just mentioned, but in order to become an actual ecosystem, the way that YouTube is an ecosystem, it's all about incentivizing the creators in the right way to actually consistently make that platform into a place where people want to come back day after day. And that's through monetization, through, through a partner program. Exactly. Through, through monetization, finding a way to incentivize the creator to come back to that platform and you know not go to something else. And I think you look at Vine as an example, a lot of YouTubers back in 2012, I would say maybe 2013-ish, you know, they went to Vine because it was a new platform where they could sort of grow much more quickly than they could on YouTube because YouTube's face had gotten so crowded. But if you look at all the different platforms today where you can, you know, quote unquote, grow an audience, you've got Snapchat, you've got Instagram, you've got Vine, you've got obviously YouTube. Facebook is obviously promoting their own native video uploaders much more frequently in their in their newsfeed. I think it's, you know, only, only I, to my knowledge, YouTube is the only one that pays its creators for the content they're making. So until that changes, I think the next platform to monetize the creators effectively are the ones is the one that's going to, and I, I agree. I don't think anyone's actually going to win. I think it's just going to be, who's going to have a stronger foothold in, in, in the space. So, I mean, I would maybe go on a limb and say who potentially loses might be not, not totally loses, but who doesn't necessarily win in this scenario by default, maybe is losing is YouTube because by having Twitch and platform or sorry, Twitch and YouTube and you now as a place, as a creator, I can go to make money. 
you know, I'm still kind of reliant for the most part in talking to you now and talking to Twitch. A lot of their creators who come on are still growing their audiences on YouTube. So YouTube is still the kind of the default number one place to kind of build an audience, but it's slowly no longer becoming the place to monetize an audience as a creator. So as I kind of mature in my audience growth, I tend to spend more time on these other platforms that can give me a, a higher return. And, and I think from what I've heard, especially for like the mid-tier creators, the ones with a highly engaged audience, platforms that help you monetize the audience based on engagement, which is what Twitch and you, you now does, has a much higher return to the creator. So mm-hmm. where you buy virtual hats or you you know tip the creator for being singled out in the chat, things like that, where Twitch and you now both employ. I think that is you know very powerful and makes a much more difficult, you know, if I'm a creator, how do I spend my time? And maybe you, I don't upload as much on, on YouTube. So that's where, and that's why I think YouTube's probably in reacting to that, starting with the live streaming, the gaming version that they've come out with recently, because I think you recognized it. Which seems to have been doing very well. I mean, we've looked at things like YouTube Kids, mm-hmm. other kind of YouTube product announcements, YouTube Music, which seems to be doing okay, but not not great like, uh, like others anticipated. But the gaming standalone product seems to have done very well. Definitely. I mean, just from the pure fact that gaming is such a huge portion of what YouTube is. Um, I mean, some people say YouTube is half music, half gaming. <laughs> probably right. And yeah. then like a sliver of like beauty and style gurus mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone else is in that other category. But I mean, I think it was a really smart move for them to sort of separate out gaming into its own platform because I think the community that watches that disproportionately is so much more influential that they they need a dedicated product that services their needs. You know, I think if you look at and kind of touching back on what you mentioned earlier of people having their own uh, niche within the live streaming space, I think I think that exists today. But I do know that obviously I think Twitch did a Bob Ross marathon, I think a couple of weeks back where they just live streamed a whole bunch of Bob Ross videos yeah. of him painting. And I've noticed they are making a more considered effort to get into the creative art space. So mm-hmm. whether it's like painting or music or I don't know, pottery or anything like that, like working with people outside their normal gaming vertical, it has become a focus for them. And, you know, I think everyone right now, because it is a a blue ocean, if you don't try to tackle everything, you end up, you know, quote unquote losing. And, you know, I don't know if that's the right strategy, but it is a strategy that I see that a lot of these companies are taking is you make your bones in a particular vertical. And once you own it, then you try to spread as quickly as you can into other spaces. Yeah. I think the other thing that's important, and I think this is where is preventing Periscope from becoming really mainstream is when you look at you now and you look at Twitch, because they have kind of related channels creating content, you know, very similar. There's a lot of one vlogger is doing a collaboration with another one on you now or same thing on, on Twitch. It's easy to get a creator to send someone to you now to like, Hey, I'm doing a, a live stream, right? And then if that person's already on there, they may recognize some of the other people that are trending. So the discovery aspect is built in. I think the challenge with Periscope is you're relying on Twitter to like drive people to Periscope. And I I think people who follow someone on Twitter and that person is live streaming on Periscope, they might go to them, but then they're done. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I think the discovery aspect is really important for those companies to kind of figure out. And I think that's the opportunity for some data companies to come in and help either the platforms do it or have third parties do it. But I don't think there's enough of, I'm say like a Periscope or a Meerkat to go enough of, hey, I'm going there as a, as a destination and I'm staying there. And I think that's where you know and Twitch have a big advantage. That's a really interesting point because while Twitter is very well known, it's not popularly adopted, at least in the US, 
among consumers. And so it seems to have, especially recently, taken a very news-focused or kind of real-time like news reporting bent. And Periscope seems to kind of reflect that as well. Whereas Twitch, very focused on gaming, you now kind of focus more on the casual creator, vlogger style of approach. You mentioned other platforms. I think it's interesting, Luke, to note that the largest YouTube creator, PewDiePie, arguably from a subscriber standpoint, is not the largest Finestar, is not the largest you know, page on Facebook. Why is that the case and why are we seeing this fragmentation of video platforms? Well, I think one of the big reasons is that, and there's a lot of confusion back in the day where everyone tended to look at social media platforms, which which they are. YouTube is a social media platform. Vine is a social media platform. You know, they have components of video content delivery, but I would say the social media aspect of those platforms drove the popularity much more than just the pure content delivery. Being able to share with your friends, being able to like, you know, a video and facilitate that engagement level is is what makes, I think, those platforms as powerful as they are today. But in the same time, what works on what platform doesn't necessarily translate what apples to apples to another platform. And I think there was a tendency to kind of think of, okay, well, YouTube has an unlimited video content duration. Vine has a six second. Instagram has a 15 second. If I just sort of cut my content that I've already pre-made and stitch it in a way that makes it appropriate, then I should have the same success across all platforms. But I think we're finding that's not the case. It's the same see, reason TV content doesn't work on YouTube, right? Yeah. And see, I always I picture the world as one big high school and everybody just kind of picks the click they want to be a part of. Like YouTube was the cool kid click and everybody just joined it up. So what social really click are you a part of? I mean, obviously, I keep my ear to the ground on YouTube. LinkedIn, honestly, I cannot wait till they have 360 video support because I'm on that thing, like like Wide on Rice. I use Periscope, but mostly because I'm excited for the day they announced that I can literally click on someone's Periscope speed and it's 180 to 300 degree live Periscope. I mean, the concept of a Periscope is the old submarine days, right? You put it in, you're looking around in full 360. So no joke. I know that Twitter is smart enough to know that, hey, we, the evolution of this can be that. I have my ear to the ground on that, but it's Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. I mean, I'm my late 20s now, man. So I don't have you're time not, you're for snapping. You're not snapping. I snap. Anybody. I snap so I can look, but, <laughs> but it's not my thing. Like that's yeah. the point. Like I joined those clicks. Uh, that's my ecosystem. I'm aware of all the importance of these other ones. But there's going to be these stars that become stars of those platforms. Uh, what is it? Jack and Jack on Vine. Yeah. I mean, they're like number 12. And then you look at YouTube or like Vin Diesel on Facebook. It's like 97 million likes or yeah. something like that. So how did Vin Diesel get that? Because he's cool. And, he, and he's also, he, I don't think he even has a YouTube channel. Well, yeah. And I think some of the other things, and this is something we've done at Tubular because it's kind of our sweet spot in terms of the data that we have by tracking all the videos and all the different platforms. We can look at content topics like cooking, for example way over indexing on Facebook video. And you see that with like Tastemade being, you know, one of the top producers on Facebook video and BuzzFeed, you know, and their BuzzFeed food channel. And a lot of people think that's also respective of the audiences. So, you know, what makes PewDiePie so powerful is there is an existing audience that's really into gaming and it's really easy for people to like a video and that reflects into someone else's feed or the collaboration effect. So when you have Facebook video and, you know, an audience that's a little bit more, excuse more female, older than say relative to YouTube, you know, some a content topic like, like cooking, which has done well on YouTube, but not nearly as well as it's doing versus like gaming, which is kind of non-existent on YouTube. So a lot of it's reflective of the audiences on those platforms because, you know, I see a cooking video, I'm going to share that with my, so everything, the viral effect is different. I also think, and just kind of not to interrupt, but like, I think yeah. Tastemade and BuzzFeed video, they've really, I would say, created those videos in a way where it's conducive for viewing and sharing on Facebook. So what I mean by that is when you look at a video on Facebook, there's no sound when you first yeah. scroll through it and it starts playing immediately. 
And so you have to capture the person's attention within the first 1.5 seconds. Otherwise, they're going to scroll past it. Whereas on YouTube, you probably have a little more leeway. You probably got 30, 20, 30 seconds to no, capture you're, their you're, attention. You're 100% correct. And I think, so the, the pioneer of that also, or one of the pioneers of that is you know, a company now this, who was like, not a, you know, had made an effort on YouTube, but then really actually kind of all, you know, right in the early days of Facebook video, they like got in, you know, pulled some people out of vice and their whole strategy was focused around Facebook video. And now they're the top producer of news content on Facebook, but their YouTube still relatively non-existent. And so then that's because their whole editorial strategy is to your point mm-hmm. geared exactly to that. And so that's a lot of what we do at Tubular too, is really help advise in using data to kind of advise on a strategy. Is it a longer video? Is it a shorter video? Like what type of content does well on what platforms? And so like now you see brands having a, what's called a multi-platform video strategy and it takes more time. And, and there's been some talk of some brands kind of dropping Vine a little bit because it's like, okay, Vine's a whole different, I can't just clip a video from a YouTube video. I can't clip a Facebook video. I have to do something, you know, with a Vine influencer and with a Facebook influencer. So there is a level of attention that has to be paid to each platform and that can, and it's kind of a zero sum game in that sense. Yeah, that's interesting. What about from a global perspective, what other platforms are going to become relevant internationally? I can't speak to any of the Chinese platforms, but we've worked with clients, a lot of them in Singapore that are like agencies in our alleys asking us. Japan, I can't think, has actually a platform that's bigger there than YouTube. Can't think of off the top of my head. I'm not too well versed. I mean, I know in Brazil and Portuguese market, YouTube's still huge, but China and some of the and Japan, I know specifically yeah. had like was it Todo in China? Yeah, Yoku Todo, Yoku, which was yeah. acquired by Alibaba. Yes, yeah. right. Well, and Tencent yeah. just bought all the remaining shares of League of Legends. So well, we're really talking about like platforms in and of itself. That has a community that is voracious and they're there and they're willing to spend and there's a D if there's ever a DLC ever like if I was a gamer and I was involved with League of Legends you just see that deal you're like geez I better be friendly with Tencent well WeChat too in China as well so Mm -hmm. I mean like WeChat is like a different animal I mean it's like really Snapchat Facebook Messenger and like Venmo and Amazon rolled into one. Sure. Right. So a huge trends there, right? Mobile and messaging being incredible areas of progress in 2015. I anticipate that will, you know, continue next year as well. Do we see a convergence with mobile video and messaging in the future? I think it has to to a certain degree. I mean, if you think at the way that Snapchat evolved initially, it was a peer to peer messaging platform. And now that part still exists, but I would say it's equally parts, if not more so, you know, a media company. That has a whole bunch of hosted content, you know, some from established players, some from just that's just UGC because messaging lends itself into media so well, because most times when you're talking, I would say a good 30, 40% of the stuff that I text are probably like stupid videos that I just sent mm-hmm. to my friends or my girlfriend. They're like, stop texting me. Why don't you get a job, please? <laughs> Dude, like, I got time to watch videos. I don't you find though, like for YouTube, when I find something, I don't, I'm not, a, I think Google probably is still trying to scratch their head on, on Google plus. Like, what do we do with this thing? Like own G chat. Oh, I think they've made a call that, that it's over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I've always just thought I use G chat. I've used it forever. I have so many contacts on G chat, just own G chat. Which is now hangouts, by the way. Google yeah. chat is now officially know, their video platform. Which is great. Which is like the sharing functionality, but I don't need too many bells and whistles. Just make it easy for me to be on YouTube and share something with a friend. That's why Facebook works. I have a button. 
Oh, I think, they, button. I think they tried that when they forced people to comment with Google Plus. I know. And it was, like, that's what, it. don't require anything. Don't force a hand at somebody. Just right. give me a button. Amazon has it with a buy instant button. Well, I think, I think Facebook just, has a share. I think they're just kind of trigger scared. Or what's it called? Uh, not trigger happy. What's the opposite of trigger happy? Trigger sad? <laughs> gun chat? Yeah, the gun, gun shot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has something to do with like a weapon or uh, I don't know. I like triggers. Yeah, they're like the yeah, gun shot about I think combining their ecosystems now because of the backlash yeah. that uh, YouTube had with with Google Plus. Sure. I think they thought initially in their world that was like, oh, it makes so much sense. What's the rev share again? Is it fifty five forty five? Okay, so the thing I, I bring on that is you have a bunch of game developers getting into immersive media because they understand, hey, I've been doing 360 environments my entire life. The rev share they're used to is 70-30. If you work with the big guys, maybe they even have special deals, 80-20 with certain app stores, right? You, it's Bezos said in that, or he didn't actually officially say, but that book, The Everything Store, and one of the most common quotes from that book is, your margin is my opportunity. YouTube better, in my opinion, kind of figure out if that's something they're going to do with all these people that are getting involved with immersive media. And they got Facebook over here that seems willing to accommodate almost anything. They're like, yeah, just we're the platform. Go for it. YouTube, I assume, is aware of the fact that everybody has a 70-30 split. They have their own app store. But 45-50, that's the most common thing I get from creators, and correct me if I'm wrong, is shouldn't I get more of this? Well, and you also have to take into account the creators probably working with multi-channel sure. network also. Yep. And I think that goes back to the point made earlier. I think it's going to be really hard for someone like YouTube to monetize a immersive content side by side in the same platform as it is with regular video content. I think they have, you have to have a, a separate platform that recognizes the premium nature or the unique experience yeah. of that type of video, because otherwise if they don't, somebody will and they'll be able to charge more money for it. And I think that's always held YouTube back from higher CPMs is, you know, the beauty of it is anyone can upload to it. And, but the problem is anyone can upload to it. <laughs> yeah. So like, when a brand is very hesitant to be like, I, you know, I, I want to just blanket YouTube. No, they have to work with the company, contextualize the ads. And, and there's always brand safety issues. And so I think Facebook might try to tackle that too, by having more of a, mm. I don't know that they'll have as much of an open ecosystem as YouTube does so they can charge a higher CPM. So I think the same thing would happen with immersive content is this is premium content and we're going to put it in a way that it's premium whether we charge the creator or charge advertisers, it's going to reflect that content. Well, and with so many platforms coming online and offering monetization soon, obviously Facebook first with its announcement, it's inevitable that the YouTube rev share will come down at some point. I don't see that happening next year. Facebook's already offered to match the terms of the YouTube partner program. But you have to keep in mind that what's different from video monetization that you know that is not the case in an app store is that YouTube is directly monetizing for them. They're selling the ads on their behalf, mm-hmm. either through their exchange system or with the Google sales team. So YouTube does get a bad rap for having such a very high rev share. And, you know, I'll be the first to agree with that. But to play devil's advocate, they also bring a lot of value to the platform through search, through, you know, you upload and walk away. Yeah. And they have to host and serve that video to you anywhere in the world. So when Luke, you know, is traveling and wants to watch that in Cambodia, even though an advertiser is not interested in targeting him at that point, they still are going to host and serve that video for you. Well, and most importantly, too, and I think this is the reason why Facebook is taking so long to get in the monetization partner program is that they're also responsible for you know, the copyright nature of that, or they have to mm-hmm. put something in place that, you know, with content ID that allows, you know, rights holders to 
effectively be able to stake claim over their content. So sure. I think that's the biggest, I think I would say that's probably maybe their biggest expenses. So that is a painstaking process and that technology content ID could not be cheap to Oh, no, not at all. And so now that we're talking about monetization in the video space, let's talk a little bit more about the various business models. We've got YouTube with Avon, but also now offering subscription video on demand through YouTube Red. We have transactional video on demand through Google Play or the App Store, like in, in the Apple case. And then, of course, everyone unbundling and going OTT. So first of all, it might be helpful for listeners to get some definitions. So if one of you wants to take a a stab at defining the various business models and then giving your input on where you see the space going, are they all going to continue to exist side by side? What's the right place for the various business models? Uh, Sure. So AVOD is uh, advertising video on demand. That's going to be YouTube primarily. Vimeo, uh, not Vimeo, sorry, Daily Motion is. So any, any global sort of mass distribution video platform is going to probably going to be uh, AVOD with the exception of Netflix, which is SVOD, a subscription video on demand where you pay a select fee per month or per whatever for access to their content. And that will include, you know, Hulu. Again, Hulu is a a mixed uh, model as well. It has the SVOD and the AVOD models both baked into there. And then the last one is the TVOD model, which is transactional video on demand, um, which is primarily used by companies like iTunes, where if you're buying a single movie or you're renting a single TV show, you pay one time for access to that film, either for a 24 hour period or for, you know, indefinitely depending on whatever you're purchasing. So as you defined it, it was very clear that there are a lot of hybrid models and YouTube now very famously launching a subscription revenue service, hiring a lot of people from the Netflix team to make a play for the subscription business, which has more predictable revenue streams and for the most part values users higher than if they were being served advertising and being monetized through an AVOD business model. John, as you look at the video space, how do you see the future of these various business models playing out? Yeah. So as Luke was mentioning, there's a lot of companies like startups actually getting into this too. You've got companies like VHX and then you have like the big established you know, media companies like Go90 by Verizon, Watchable is I think NBC, you know, Comcast. So I think my the biggest challenge, I think, with the subscription video on demand where you're putting a paywall in front of content is the way that YouTube content is discovered today is based on the word of mouth from the audience that's consuming it. So, you know, PewDiePie puts out a video and next thing you know, he's trending on Twitter because he or Nash Greer, great example, you know, he's trending because that's a, an event and all his fans are picking up on it. And then everyone's, you know, part of the discovery is kind of the the fan excitement and the reaction to it. So it's like, yeah, you know, when you talk about a subscription model, like you only need 5% of the people to purchase it. But part of the whole experience of consuming that content is discussing it and talking about it with the collective audience. So by like shuttering out a huge percentage of that audience through subscription, you're kind of de- you're taking away part of what makes that content actually viable in the first place and what makes people really attracted to it. So I, I think that the, the, the subscription model is hard. I think what Vessel's trying to do is really, really hard. They have a really great team and, and I think they could potentially figure it out. I think they may have to think about more of, as opposed to just putting a paywall in front of a standard YouTube video is providing something more of difference and value. It's like, we're not just taking this off YouTube and making it early access for a price, but maybe it's providing a collaboration opportunity and using that money to fund like special like 
a great production. So uh, exclusive content. Exclusive content. I think I think that's more of a viable model. And I think fans will pay for that and they'll get more excitement for it. And, and that'll create kind of a word of mouth that you would be losing by having the subscription on just a generic, you know, uh, YouTube upload. So I, I think Vessel definitely has a possible stake to claim, but I think they might iterate a little bit, in my opinion. I come at this as a consumer and a creative, right? So you guys have the analytics, but I have this knowledge of why I bought an Xbox, why I have a Netflix subscription, why I have HBO. I literally have HBO for two shows, Bill Maher and Game of Thrones. I have a lot of other great shows that I like on it, but if I can't get those two shows, I'm going to pay whoever owns them at that time. Netflix. I have it for House of Cards. I really don't care that Wolverine came out on that. Uh, great. I have access to that. Maybe I'll watch it, but it's House of Cards. I'm waiting for the next season. I don't take away my subscription in the meantime. I just have it. I bought an Xbox for Halo 2. Straight up. No other game made me buy it except for Halo 2. I wanted to be a part of that. So exclusive content to me is the only way a subscription service can work. If you're giving me a, a windowed exclusivity, I have plenty of time to wait a week. If it's going to be available to me anyway, so in my opinion, if anybody does windowed exclusivity, it better be a perennial windowed exclusivity, three months, six months, one year, or have windowed exclusivity on live events where it's the Star Wars premiere, the Emmys, the, the Oscars, Olympics. the Olympics, where it's like, ah, oh, a week later, this is old news anyways. I need to see it now. But to have, you know, serialized house of cards one week from now versus today it's not going to change really, in my opinion. I don't, I'll just make sure my friends aren't jerks and reveal the spoilers. But that's from my, just like as a consumer. No, I 100% agree. I think it comes down to exclusive content. I think the challenge is we figured that out for premium, right? It works on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. How does that work on UGC creator platforms, right? Like Vessel, full screen, of course, is launching its own OTT platform and targeting a lower budget tier. So in that case, what kind of casual video creator or UGC content can they produce that will be exclusive to their platform that attracts an audience? Unless you have one of those like monster hits, it's really hard, I think, to do a subscription model unless you have a relationship with your audience. And I think that's where companies like, you know, Vessel and Fullscreen, who I know is trying to do an S5 product, are lacking because Vessel obviously came into the game specifically as an S5 product. They had no audience to have a relationship with until they built the product. But I was reading this article in Digiday, like I think earlier this week, there's a channel called Black and Sexy TV. You know, I was just looking it up, has 115,000 subscribers, of which 15,000 pay a $7.99 per month subscription to them. And it's like, I think people would kill for a 10% conversion rate of their subs to to pay. It all goes back to the fact that they're, they've built an audience from day one. I think they've been around for like six, seven years. They have that relationship where they say, hey, we want to change up this business model. We want to continue to deliver you guys great content, but we need this to kind of work out financially for us so we continue doing this. And I think for the most part, audiences get it. But if you if you are kind of more of like a, like I don't want to call them like a white labeled company, but just a company that isn't as a direct to consumer, it's much harder for you to make the case of, oh, you got to pay me this $6.99, $7.99, $10, $10.99, whatever it is for the content that they used to get for free because then it's just seen as a, as a greed play. You know what that reminds me of? Like if Reddit charged for their homepage, I'd be, everybody would be up in arms. They'd be like, what are you doing? But I probably would pay for the Oculus subreddit. Yep. I use it all the time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my go-to spot. I like the community. You have certain voices that show up every once in a while that are just like the consistent admin type moderators. I'm like, yeah, okay. You guys are doing a great job. Here's a little bit of money to keep this thing going because I like where it's at. Mm -hmm. But going macro with it and going like, okay, you're going to subsidize everything because we're trying to go big. It's like, you're right. I, yeah. I don't have a relationship with reddit.com. Mm -hmm. I have a relationship with the subreddit. With the community. It, with the community. It, yeah. It's the same reason why you don't see people paying for cable. I mean, in a way it's like, 
you have a lot of the big cable companies coming in and just trying to be like, oh, we're going to apply the cable model to, and but we're going to make it, you know, online. But neglecting the kind of one of the drivers for consumers online, which is that they want to watch the content and pay for the content that they're consuming, as opposed to like just putting a $2.99, even if it's a $3 a month subscription, but not really, you know, subsidizing other content that are not necessarily even consuming. So I think, I mean, you've seen like Camp Dakota, like movies, like do be successful where um, people know those creators, they know what they're going to get and they're willing to pay for that as a one-time thing. And so I think that's, I think that model works. I just, I wonder, I'm not convinced yet of just taking and windowing content that eventually comes on YouTube and doing that for a bunch of creators is successful. I mean, Vessel is not having a shortage of getting people on the platform. They're, they're, they're well financed and they're getting people on with a lot of, you know, guaranteed incentives. It's hard to tell whether or not that, that they've been able to convert from an audience perspective. It doesn't seem to have been permeating into the normal, like YouTube Mm -hmm. fan conversations yet. Right. So your point about cable television and, and predicting the future of unbundling is I think absolutely nail on the head. It once ESPN and HGTV go over the top, it's over. Everyone else, like the cable companies are just going to have to wake up and realize that at that point, people want all the cart pricing for the programs that they want to watch, the communities they want to be a part of. Who in this group has cut the cord? I haven't had it in like I've never had the cord. Yeah, Yeah. same here. My my mom has it, but uh, I've just been accounts and subscriptions. Sports Mm -hmm. is like the only thing, Mm -hmm. to to your point, is like the only thing that would... Like I had it at a... I subletted an apartment from someone who had it and I was like, <laughs> and I remember being like, the only thing I miss is yeah. not having to worry about like my internet connection or like, you know, watching ESPN and watching a live sporting event, knowing that I have like a very consistent <laughs> supply of HDTV. <laughs> so whenever like Fiverr figures that out and sports can come through OTT, like at a really consistent like rate, I think that's like a killer. I mean, I already consume ESPN for the most part flawlessly over the top. So right. just wait it. until Monday Night Football is in your headset through VR. <laughs> That's right. That's but right. Like, it goes so back to the you know, I have once a relationship. You have a, you have a brand affinity with the NFL or college right. football or like Pac-12 or right. Big Ten or anything like that. If they didn't have kind of those regional restrictions on where they can distribute their content, you probably already have those right. you know, specific feeds into your cable bot or not cable your your smart tv yeah. whatever it is the number one virtual reality show will be red zone oh yeah it'll be a hundred it'll be 50 yards or it'll be like the 20 yard line because they have the 50 yard line perspective next vr is kind of owned in the space right now but it'll be that red zone experience where you're just literally sitting back for two hours watching all your highlights as if you were in the stadium in high definition mm-hmm. 120 hertz 4K on each eye, 8K eventually. Like it's just going to be as if you're there. Yeah, I mean it's going to be insane. It's yeah, like- I, 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 so at the TV of tomorrow's like conference, someone gave me a, like a Samsung with just goggles attached onto it. Mm-hmm. Literally, that was all it was. Yeah, the Gear VR. The Gear, yeah, the Gear VR. I put it on, put like some bows on, yeah. and I'm sitting front row at a Sharks game. I thought it was the coolest thing I've ever experienced <laughs> yeah. in TV. I was like, I was blown yeah. away. And, and, and think about times you can monetize that. So yeah. you have 40, 50, 60, 70 thousand people. All right, so. You have 79,999 and there's one seat that's hooked up to really fast fiber lines that can be distributed across 7 billion people. Charge 50 bucks for that seat, maybe get 10% of the world's population, depending on what sporting event you're at. You're talking about per game, you can make billions of dollars. It's all incremental at that point. It's going to be insane. That's why the NFL network's smart. They're not just, they're they're testing the waters. They're doing it right. All the major sporting events, you your access will no longer just be, oh, can I get it over the top? Can I be there? 
That's the only thing you know? that would actually get me to watch a game for 20 minutes straight without going on Twitter. Because then I just, you know, normally, oh, yeah, it's like I won't yeah. need a second screen. I'm like, all right, this Remember is Remember really Mixed cool. Reality, yeah. though, you'll be able to superimpose your Twitter feed yeah, on say, top and yeah. speak to it and be like, hey, tw- uh, re- retweet that. Uh, yeah, that guy, uh, you know, at VR Chadwick, which uh, re- retweeted back. This is what I want you to say. So the voice that all these guys from Alexa to Cortana to Siri, the voice controls is as big a deal as driverless cars. Because if you can direct things verbally and they can do it in any dialect at all, it's over. It's Star Trek. I'm telling my lights to go on. I'm telling my text to go out. I actually had that idea like earlier this morning. I'm sure I'm not the only one or first person thing, but I was like, why don't they have like laptops without keyboards and I can just say what I want into the screen? Like, I do not want to be in the cubicle next to you. <laughs> I mean, like at home or something, you know, like yeah. I just be like, open Gchat, direct message to yeah. Chadwick. Like, why don't I need my laptop? I mean, because, sorry, this goes back to the whole, my apartment's really cold in the morning and I can't type. And so my fingers are so frozen that I wish that I had a voice activated thing. So I can definitely get that. Yeah. There we go. So let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. We'll start with John. If you were building a business in the online video space today, what would you do? It's a good question. If I were building a business today in online video, I think there is still a huge opportunity around being a creator focused, not necessarily like an agency, but technology that helps brands work with creators cross-platform doing campaigns. I think there's still a lot of people who want to quickly get a message distributed across social platforms today, but there's too much like too much friction in between them. Like it's not programmatic in a sense. I think there will we're slowly getting to a day where you can almost programmatically brand integrate or get your message out there more quickly. So I think there's opportunities to I think that you know, from my perspective, the clients that we work with, there's still a lot of opportunities there. And I think that business is just going to grow. So it's a sure, I think it's more of a sure thing. It's not necessarily the billion dollar company, but it's just, I think we're seeing in the way that social transformed agencies from the traditional to you have these digital agencies that are now like massive behemoth company players in the space. I think social video is going to kind of create a whole new ecosystem around creating content for brands to be specific for those platforms. So multi-platform programmatic buying, are you talking about paid media, native advertising, influencer marketing? I think influencer marketing and paid native advertising on social video is the opportunity. Primarily, I think influencer. I think it's just too hard today to say, I want to quickly, I want to get views distributed quickly across these different platforms. You have to work with one influencer. There's a slow burn in terms of how you get views. You'll get the views that you need in 30 days, but it's really hard to just you know, get exposure to Facebook, to YouTube, to Instagram. A lot of companies really just emphasize focus on one of those platforms. Luke, I think if I were to do something today, I would download a copy of the TV guide and I would pull out all those channels and make a list of them and then figure out what kind of content they normally, you know, produce and then try to find what YouTube channels correlate with those. So for example, we talked about HGTV earlier, right? Like what are the HGTV's HGTV channels on YouTube that have an audience but haven't yet developed monetization component in a way that allows them to, to grow bigger? The reason I bring this up is because I'm a big country music fan. <laughs> you wouldn't think that by looking at me, but I love country music. There aren't any really strong country music brands in the digital space. You look at like CMT, which is probably the biggest country music brand, and they have less than like half a million followers on Instagram, which you know is a, is a big number, but... 
I think Kendall Jenner has like 30 million followers and it just comparatively Kim Kim Mojis. Yeah. And it's like, there's definitely more, I know there's definitely more people that listen to country music than like Kendall Jenner or whatever, but that's an opportunity is because I don't think anyone sort of looked at that space as an area for growth and said, Hey, we need to invest resources. You know, if we're going to be on cable, we're only going to have a cable audience for the next 20 years. Why can't we? And, and I don't think they have the institutional knowledge to know how to grow a presence in the digital space. And, you know, if they're only getting savvy to YouTube now, it's like, okay, you can't just be savvy on YouTube. You got to know how to develop content for, for Snapchat, for Instagram, for Periscope, you know, all these different platforms that if you're just getting savvy to it now, you're two years behind because the world is evolving at such a fast clip. So going back to what you said, but that being said, these guys all still have really strong sales teams. They're partnered up with the Viacoms, the Comcast, the Disney's, the whoever's, and those guys can sell inventory like crazy. So if you can find a way to bundle them, the light content on digital with the light content in traditional, there's a strong transfer between content and, and money there that I think doesn't exist quite yet today. I think to your point, you've seen in less than like two years, Tastemade almost become yes. what Food Channel would exactly. like to have been but is probably trying to catch up. You can tell because now the food channel is on Snapchat 100%, 100%. and now they're like putting big money into YouTube and it's like, Oh crap, who's tastemate. But I, I mean, it's, you know, they still are, at least they're reacting, but they're behind. There are probably, you're right. There are probably definitely, and especially with Facebook video now, it's almost unlocking a whole new audience that, you know, you, where you could get scale much quicker. Whereas on YouTube, it was much harder to get scale. So Facebook video is now opening up the opportunity to reach audiences who you might not have otherwise reached on YouTube. And so you'll see more of these traditional, like, I think there'll be a car channel that'll be really big. Exactly. And you're right. I think that's a totally, totally valid strategy. And Chadwick, I suppose you already are building a company in the video space today, but if you were starting you know, tomorrow, what would you do? Well, geez, what would be the big money makers? I guess it could be like a porn sports agency. A porn sports agency? With a branch for you for your cowboy boots and boogie division. Yeah. I don't know. I think that if I had to do, if I wasn't necessarily in VR, but it was video based, like what would be the opportunity? It's, there's a huge, I think everybody's talked about the bridges of trying to get people across all of these platforms. I think a consultancy that could explain to people the dawn of this brand new vertical, one of the most common things that happens when you tell somebody, hey, I work in VR, they go... Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. I've seen an article in Fortune. It's going to be the future, right? Isn't it like next 3D TV? And then, unfortunately, the person probably has a smartphone on them. If they're a senior exec, they're not rocking a Nokia Razor. And you can just have them download a Burst app, a Jaunt app. Let's try a Paul McCartney concert for you. And then they kind of get it. But I think that that's the biggest bridge right now. You have two things. Consumers are kind of unaware that the 99% of the power is already in their pocket. And a lot of the people that hold the purse strings on the PL of major corporations are like, yeah, VR is this, but we can still, we need to make billions of dollars. Disney just made X, Universal just made Y, and they made it in these traditional forms. We're not willing to risk it. So it's who's going to be the first to move? I mean, I've kind of already been doing that, but I think that that's a huge opportunity to teach people with billions of dollars at their disposal that you don't understand this is, this is going to happen very quick. You're going to blink your eyes and it'll be the dawn of an industry and you'll blink again. And then there'll be billion dollar unicorns, if, if you will. And then a year later, those unicorns will actually be revenue generating machines that you're going to have to aqua hire for a lot more money than just developing it in-house. Super excited to be a part of that. Mobile games, right? You look at the iPhone launch in 2007. A lot of people forget the iPhone hasn't even been around for more than 10 years. So 2007 is when it launched. Companies that were smart saw it, it's been in the game space, saw it and said, oh my God, this is going to be huge. Rovio with Angry Birds, Supercell with Clash of Clans, 
and they killed it. And they're still multi-billion dollar companies. Of course, you could say Rovio has had layoffs recently, blah, blah, but let's just talk about the peak three, four, five years afterwards. They found an opportunity and they owned it. And immersive media will be the biggest entertainment vertical in the history of content. It's going to involve everything from going to concerts, to sitting on the 50 yard line, to watching surgeries, to traveling the world, to real estate tours, to education. It's If you are someone that's young, wants to work in entertainment, and you have not even tried a cardboard application, you, my friend, are ill-advised. You need to figure figure yourself out and go to download some stuff and realize that whatever traditional media you're working in right now, if that's your passion, you're like, no, I watch Godot and I want to be the next Kubrick. And it's like, great, that we need filmmakers. We need people in TV. That those mediums are not going away. Broadway is fantastic. Like... Dina Menzel has if, if and then, right? Playing it contagious. Like those things will not go away. But guess what? When I'm in Twin Falls, Idaho, I'm going to be able to be fifth row center at all these events. And that's going to be the most monetized, coolest platform on the planet. So 30 seconds or less, someone who's never had a VR experience before, what's the best starting point? Uh, you could try, honestly, the best thing I can do for people is the Gear VR intro to VR video from Felix and Paul gives you a great example of the show Cirque du Soleil Curios. They give you an example of uh, what it's like to be in a yurt in Tibet. They let you fly. They let you float in the middle of space and it's two minutes. And then at the end, everybody's like, whoa. So where do you find that? It's literally, it's built in. So if you have a Samsung device, whether it's the Note 4, S5, S6, all the things from the Note 4 and beyond, for hundred bucks, you can buy a Gear VR device, plug it in, install it. If you only have a device that can do basic applications, you know, Verse has an app that I think has some compelling experiences. Epicenter and Grab are going to be releasing some stuff in the next couple of weeks. So it'll probably change once those have actually hit the marketplace. But uh, yeah, there's, I would advise VRSC or, or SE, Verse is good. But if you have a Gear VR, check out the intro to VR video and then make some of your own content. Like That's the thing. Too many engineers are pretending to be creatives in this space. We need more storytellers to show up because they're still confused as to the smoke and mirrors on how to activate this stuff. Like it's 10 grand to get started. 6,000 for the camera. You need at least a $2,000 rig, the software, the memory cards, and then just the knowledge is not even included in that. But they're coming. It's coming. There we go. The future is now. Luke, what predictions do you have for the future of online video? That's a tough one. Quick bullets. Um, yeah, quick bullets. I think, honestly, next year, I think live streaming is going to have its big moment that MCNs had in 2013, 2014. And then, as Chadwick said, after the 2016 holiday period, when everyone is going to get a some sort of VR device as a Christmas present, I think 2017 is going to be the big year for VR. So I can only see two years ahead. I can't even, I can't. There we go. That. That's awesome. Chadwick, predictions for online video. Luke hit it on the head. Everybody's like, well, can we make money? I'm like, absolutely not. Not yet. I mean, there's money to be made. Some people will be these grand examples of, oh, we're making money in VR. Congratulations. They keep the lights on, et cetera. But the real mission is establish yourself this next year. If you need to raise money, raise money. If you can do it on your own with branded content, foundational projects where you actually go for you know people with endowments to go film stuff, do it. But establish yourself as a storytelling space because once 2017 hits, late 2016, all of the major studios will show up to your door and go, hey, we saw these five pieces. You're fantastic. We have X, Y, and Z that we need experience on. The studios, right? You have Fox and you have a bunch of shingles on the lot. Those shingles will rapidly evolve where either the shingles have to have a VR division inside of them. But those guys are going to either have to hire from this entire plethora of people that will exist in the space or develop it internally. But they don't have they're running out of time to do a proper production takes at least two, three, four, five months. 
And that's if you're fully focused on it. So the future, uh, 2016, sure, live streaming, et cetera. But the focus is in virtual reality and immersive media. 2017 will be that year that the people that didn't get involved will review their emails and go, man, I really should have responded to that one. That's the tipping point, huh? 2017. <laughs> right. 2017. Q2 will be calendars. that moment that we're all like, wow, like we will have this podcast in alt space or YouTube or Twitch. <laughs> and John, predictions so, for the future video. So I think we've already seen like consumption habits like really shift significantly, but I think the future is that that pain will start to be felt a lot more by the companies who aren't on social video. And that's because the vast majority of people consuming content online are under 24 and nothing about them as they get older, which is what people assume they would kind of change their habits and switch back to cable. They're not doing that. And so as that audience ages into the prime demographic for brands, advertisers, you know, and, and starts to have more disposable income, I think you don't necessarily see a huge jump. We've already seen a huge jump in changing in viewing habits, but now we start seeing a huge jump in the economics. And I think companies that have historically been, you know, struggling to get to profitability in this space start to do really well. And I think the companies that have a business built on, you know, the traditional side start to feel a lot more pain because it's just going to continue. The problem for them is going to continue to increase and the opportunity for the, the the early adopters will now, they'll start to mature into bigger companies. And where can people find more about you and more about what you're working on? Starting with Luke. <laughs> no, I'm off the grid right now. So, I mean, I'm not off the grid, but like my Instagram is private. My Facebook is private. My LinkedIn's, my LinkedIn is up there. So if you search for Luke Wang on LinkedIn, you can see what I've done, but I don't have anything public about what I'm up to. In personal stealth mode. I dig it. Personal man. stealth mode. That's right. good. Yeah. Just put that on the route. Uh, Twitter, VR Chadwick, LinkedIn. Things just Chadwick Turner. Uh, you go to circlevr.com. You can go to epicentervr.com. And then Facebook. I'm probably not going to accept your friendship. It's mostly personal photos. So hang hang out with me on Twitter. John? Yeah. So personally, I'm at on Twitter at J-K-R-O-O-P-F. Uh, or John Kroof on LinkedIn, or you can just you know reach out to Two Better Labs if you're interested in learning more about a company and what they're offering. Either myself or one of my colleagues will reach out to you. Guys, thank you so much. We covered a lot of ground today. Incredible conversation. You all are various subject matter experts in so many different things. So I'm glad we had such an awesome discussion and I personally learned so much. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, We hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.